You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse, brilliant philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Douglas Fisick. Douglas is a visiting assistant professor at the University of New Haven. He's an activist and intellectual who specializes in African philosophy, philosophy of race, and social and political philosophy. His dissertation was entitled, Man is a Yes, Fanon, Liberation, and the Playful Politics of Philosophical Archaeology. Hello, Doug, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I am great, and it's a pleasure to uh, be talking to you. Listen, Doug, the last time I saw you was, I think, the beginning of this year, if not at the end of last year. And yeah. I remember we did we did lunch at, at, the t- at our diner, our spot. Yeah, and right I by remember, John Jay. Yes, and I remember telling you about the idea that I had for the podcast, mm-hmm. and you gave me some very encouraging, a very encouraging response and advice, and here we are four episodes later. Well, I, I guess I'm glad I did that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it was, a, it, it was and is a great idea. I've been listening to all the episodes. I think they're fantastic. Um, I think that this is a unique uh, podcast. And, you know, it is true. There are a lot of philosophy podcasts, but I, I think this is a truly unique one. And, uh, you know, I know that you've been getting a lot of positive feedback, and I think you deserve every bit of it. Well, well thank you for being the first voice to tell me so. Oh, excellent. <laughs> All right. So how did you how did you get interested in philosophy? Um, I got interested in philosophy, I think, because when I was a kid, I tended to be more of an introvert, and I was also always very introspective, and I, I really enjoyed reading. And uh, the genre that I really uh, took to when I was in grade school, actually, was uh, historical fiction. And so I really enjoyed, you know, these, you know, these big stories about, you know, uh, historical characters and historical events and all these things. And one book that blew me away uh, was The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. And I remember reading this book, which is superficially just a murder mystery, but it's this really remarkable story with this uh, complex theological and philosophical backdrop. And I remember there was a a scene in the book where uh, the two main characters, William of Baskerville, I think, and and his novice Adso, they're talking about horses, I think. And in their discussion about horses, they were illustrating the difference between Plato and Aristotle and their respective theory of forms. And I remember when I, I realized sort of what was happening, and, and as it was explained, I just found it fascinating. And I, I just, I really loved philosophy ever since I was a kid. So uh, as an undergrad, I went to Iowa State University. I'm from the Midwest. I'm originally from Fargo, North Dakota. And so I uh, went to Iowa State, uh, actually because I was interested in genetics, and I was going to do a double major with genetics and philosophy, and pretty quickly realized, even though I was still interested in the sciences, I really wanted to focus on philosophy. And I majored, and uh, about midway through, uh, I started to have some real questions about what it is I wanted to study and what it was I wanted to focus on, because, you know, I had friends who were interested in questions like, what is a number? 
you know, what is the metaphysical, ontological status of a number? And I think that's an interesting question, and I don't even think it's unimportant, but it certainly wasn't what I was interested in. I was interested in things that were more concrete. I was interested in things having to do with, you know, social justice and, and, and uh, things like that. Uh, at that time, then, I started doing work with uh, a professor who was then in charge of the African-American Studies program, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, J. Herman Blake. And once I started doing work with him and taking a lot of courses with him, I realized that there was this really you know, remarkably rich intersection uh, between philosophy and, uh, and Africana studies or black studies. And I started reading people whom I honestly had never heard of. And I also started reading people whom I already knew, but in a different way. And at that point, I realized I, I really wanted to do work uh, it, you know, on, uh, on uh, Africana philosophy and philosophy of race. And so I uh, graduated and I ultimately uh, came to New York and I did my master's in African-American studies uh, at the Institute for Research in African-American Studies at Columbia University, uh, where I worked with Manning Marable, the late Manning Marable. And then after I finished my master's, I knew I wanted to do my PhD in philosophy. And uh, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to do my, uh, my doctoral work with Lewis Gordon. Uh, whose work I had very much admired since the summer of 2000. Now, you, you said that you do uh, work on race and African philosophy. And for those who cannot see us, because that's impossible, because this is a podcast, uh, you are a white man doing work <laughs> yeah. on race and African uh, philosophy. Are people surprised by this? And what is your response to that surprise? I think... It's not surprising for people who are already doing work in the field. Um, but I will say that as a professor, there are any number of times when I've walked into a classroom and uh, I can see students are looking at me and they're wondering either am I in the wrong place or are they the wrong place, right? <laughs> right. Um, there's a course that I taught for many years at of Manhattan Community College called Modern Black Political Thought. It's a course I, I've loved teaching. And uh, every semester, uh, I'd be in class getting ready on the very first day, and students would come in, and they would get a sort of quizzical look on their faces, and then they would check their schedule, and then they'd sit down. And yeah, so uh, that w is, is not an uncommon thing. But I, I'll, I will say that it's never been uh, an issue. It's never been at least up until this point, a, a problem in any way that I've ever been conscious of. What do you think is the root of that surprise? Well, I think there are are a few things. Um, one is there is a an assumption that people will do intellectual work that maybe only speaks to their own personal experience. Uh, so if, if I'm doing, you know, intellectual philosophical work and it pertains to cultures and experiences and peoples who I'm not a, a part of directly, that I think strikes people as maybe unexpected or, or perhaps odd. But, uh, 
you know, one of the things that I've, I've learned over the years, and again, I, I'm sure that there may be situations, perhaps in the future with me or maybe with other people already, where this, this definitely isn't the case, but my feeling is that students, regardless of who they are, uh, appreciate teachers who are sort of open and honest about who they are, where they're coming from. Uh, I don't think any students like it when a, a teacher or a professor is trying too hard to be cool or somehow uh, ethnically or racially authentic, you know, or anything like that. I have found that students just don't respond well to that kind of thing at all. And so, you know, in, in these courses where I'm teaching, I mean, it's it's pretty clear and pretty explicit from day one that, yeah, I'm a white guy from Fargo, North Dakota, and, you know, this semester we're going to be talking about the uh, black radical intellectual tradition. You wrote your dissertation on Franz Fanon. That's right. So tell us, who was Franz Fanon, and how and why did you get interested in him? Franz Fanon is someone that I was familiar with for a while, um, but I, I will admit that I think for a time I was a bit intimidated by Fanon, uh, because primarily I think of his writing style, which uh, can be difficult, ironic, and, and poetic. Um, and so I think I really started to appreciate Fanon once uh, I started reading more and more of Lewis Gordon's work. But um, as far as who he was, uh, Franz Fanon was a, a Martinican psychiatrist and political thinker and activist and revolutionary. He joined the Free French Forces during World War II. After the war, he... Uh, studied medicine and he became a psychiatrist and during uh, his uh, medical studies he actually wrote what became his first book uh, Black Skin White Masks which is uh, very much a classic work uh, many people teach that book alongside for example The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois then after you know finishing with his uh, medical education uh, and by the way, he was actually a student of Amy Césaire, one of the founders of the Negritude movement when he was a, a younger man in Martinique. But when he was done with his medical studies, he ultimately became the uh, the head of the uh, psychiatric hospital uh, in Blida, Algeria. And shortly thereafter, the Algerian war broke out, and Fanon found himself very much so siding with the Algerians against the French. And there are lots of very interesting, very compelling stories about what he did as a uh, as a psychiatrist in that hospital with, you know, with a revolution taking place really all around him. And then ultimately, uh, at the age of 36, uh, he died of leukemia. And so he actually died very young. And, and prior to his death, he wrote another classic work, which is uh, The Wretched of the Earth, uh, a work that many people have uh, sort of subtitled themselves the quote-unquote handbook of the black revolution. That's a work that also is uh, very controversial, uh, especially with respect to the chapter on violence. It's just a hugely important work. Um, in addition, uh, he wrote a book called uh, A Dying Colonialism, or at least that's the, the, the English title for it. And then there were uh, a collection of his writings that came out after his death, that were edited after his death. Uh, and the title of that work in English is Toward the African Revolution. So what was it about Fanon that got you interested? Well, I've always considered myself a rather fierce humanist. And perhaps more than anything else, Fanon's fierce 
unapologetic humanism is what I think really drew me to him and still today uh, draws me to him, not only as an inspiration philosophically or intellectually, but also as an inspiration for how I should live my life and how I should uh, approach my you know, social and political commitments and so on, right? Fanon was someone who lived his ideas, and that's quite rare. You know, he, uh, I think, in many ways embodied the idea of praxis, where you have theory on one hand and action on the other. Some people do, you know, only one of those, which is perhaps never really a good thing. Fanon had his ideas, but he put them into practice, and uh, he risked his life doing so. Absolutely, he did. And so that was something that I found remarkable about him, not only biographically, but also ideologically and, and philosophically. Now, you, you said that the Fanon was a psychiatrist, and mm -hmm. uh, so he wasn't a philosopher by training, but you were able to do a dissertation on him. You said that Lewis Gordon does this work on Fanon. Can, can you tell me how it's possible to find philosophical insight from people who are not philosophers? So what we find in Africana philosophy, for example, barring philosophical insight from a lot of contributors who were not philosophers by trade. So you, can you tell us how is that possible to find that philosophical insight, even when that particular person is not a philosopher per se? Sure. I, I mean, I think that's a great question. I would say, first of all, that, you know, even if Fanon was a psychiatrist, he can also be a philosopher in addition to that. It doesn't have to be necessarily in either or situation, but it is true that you know his his training was primarily you know in in medicine. Though he did study philosophy as a student in in France with Merleau-Ponty and many other uh, thinkers, uh, many of whom associated with existentialism. Now, but, tell us uh, tell us what existentialism is for those who are not philosophers by training. Sure. Well, I would say that existentialism with a capital E refers to a particular philosophical and literary movement that is generally associated with sort of, you know, mid-20th century, uh, you know, continental European thought. And there are certain figures who are associated with that. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, um, and many, many others. But I think it's also important to, to realize that many of the questions that animate uh, existentialism with a capital E have been around for a very long time. And so I tend to think of existentialism not exclusively in terms of, you know, that specific moment in, you know, mid 20th century. I tend to think of existentialism as a, a much more broad category. And in terms of the kinds of themes that are important within existentialism, uh, perhaps more than any uh, theme, and it would be the, the theme of freedom. Existentialists are deeply committed to the idea of human beings as uh, free beings, as dynamic beings, and also as beings who need to take responsibility, not only for, for their lives, but also for the social conditions and the political conditions around them. And so there is, at least for me, a kind of humanism uh, in, in existentialism. And, uh, of course, uh, Sartre actually wrote a work called, uh, you know, Existentialism is a Humanism. But that is how I've always thought of it. There's something deeply humanistic about existentialism. And because I've always had these normative concerns about social injustice, for me, existentialism provided uh, a certain amount of, you know, sort of theoretical resources to think about issues of 
alienation and exclusion, exploitation, oppression, and dehumanization. And you and you would say that that Fanon in his work was able to capture those particular themes, and so you were able to get philosophical insight as a result. Or you can't get philosophical insight. No, most definitely. I, I think, well, there's something also I think that is worth pointing out, which is that one of the, the big questions in philosophy is the question of humanity. What does it mean to be a human being? How should we understand who we are as human beings in the world? And there's been a tendency to think about those sorts of questions in terms of what some people refer to as ideal theory. And... When people do work in ideal theory, they are often doing work that is incredibly abstract, incredibly theoretical, and often kind of divorced from reality. As a result, there is sometimes a tendency to forget, for example, that we are embodied beings, right? We aren't just these, you know, floating concepts or floating consciousnesses going around. I mean, we have bodies, and our bodies are different. Right, people are embodied differently. Many philosophers don't really consider that very important in existentialism, and not exclusively existentialism, but within existentialism, there is a recognition of the importance of our embodiment, uh, of the concrete world in which we are embedded, and how we understand that. And what I would argue, and I'm not the first person to argue this by any means, is that while that kind of ideal theorizing can be a, a very good thing. It can provide us with certain, you know, normative principles that we should strive for and so on. I think it's also important that if we really want to understand the human being, if we want to understand the human condition, I think it's incredibly important to consider the experiences and the articulations of people in the world whose humanity has been denied them. Hmm. I think that if you're only thinking about the, the anthropological question, ideally, there's going to be a whole lot you're going to miss. And so that was one of the reasons that, to be honest, early on, I, I was very attracted to some of these uh, debates taking place within Africana philosophy and the philosophy of race, because there was uh, a concreteness to it. There was this recognition of embodiment. There was uh, a recognition that the world is unfortunately, uh, you know, a profoundly unjust place in many, many ways. And then the question is, okay, where do we go from here? And how do we, how do we think about that? So I think that existentialism has a lot to offer there. I think that Fanon, as a thinker himself, has a, a tremendous amount to offer there. So you mentioned that his, his last text is uh, sometimes referred to as the handbook for the Black Revolution. Yeah. What, what insights does Fanon give to us concerning social protests? Well, that's a good question. Um, a few things I think are worth pointing out. Fanon, in the very first chapter of The Wretched of the Earth, which is titled Concerning Violence, and it's a very lengthy chapter and it's a very controversial chapter, Fanon makes the, the argument that colonialism, and we might also extend that to say, you know, uh, white supremacy, institutionalized anti-black racism. These are things that are, are very real, and they are very real in the world as institutions and as value systems and so on. And to challenge that may and 
probably will require very real conflict. Okay, Fanon recognized, and he's not the first person to recognize this either, that often positive social and political change can only take place if there is struggle. If there, and, and this is a point that, you know, of course, Douglas famously made. But, you know, Fanon talks about this in terms of the necessity in some historical cases of uh, more than just nonviolent pacifist, you know, means. And this is one of the things that a lot of people find both very compelling about Fanon, but also uh, troubling. Because, of course, in the United States, when we think about protesting and so on, we tend to have this ideal of nonviolence. But one of the things that Fanon warns us about, uh, and this appears, I think, in Black Skin, White Masks, this appears in uh, A Dying Colonialism, this appears in The Wretched of the Earth, is to not allow the oppressors, to not allow the, the, you know, the people who, who are doing the exploiting and the oppressing and the dehumanizing to define the appropriate terms under which people who are being exploited, oppressed, and dehumanized can and should protest, right? And so there is, you know, a tendency, for example, if we're talking about maybe Occupy Wall Street or even uh, today in terms of the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, a lot of people in the media, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, fairly well-known talking heads, they they like to criticize what the protesters are doing. They like to say, well, uh, you know, we're kind of sympathetic, but why do they have to do this? And why do they have to do that? There's this, um, you know, this sort of backseat driving or whatever that's sort of taking place. But, you know, the problem is that the people who are at the very least privileged and, you know, quite likely part of the problem directly should not be setting the terms for what, what, a, what, a, what a protest should be. In, in the search for justice. You know, I feel the same way in regards to anger, right? As much as, as you're saying yeah, that's that right. people trying to police the way in which we, you know, protest. I think the same mm -hmm. thing happens in regards to uh, the oppressor trying to police the way in which we express emotions or have emotions, right? So your anger is not appropriate, you know, that kind of thing. Your social protest is not appropriate. So I, I totally, I totally, I totally get it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I was at a, a march just, you know, several weeks ago. And, you know, one of many in light of the non-indictment uh, with respect to the death of Eric Garner. And, uh, of course, you know, just today, uh, people are talking about Walter Scott in yeah. South Carolina, shot eight times in the back. And uh, I made a sign, and if I remember correctly, it said something like, you know, don't lecture us about peace if you're not you know, struggling for, for justice or something along those lines. And, you know, it's not about getting up on my high horse, but there, there is this tendency for people on the side to be very judgmental and to sort of nitpick what people are doing in the street. And, it, you know, I just don't think that's appropriate. I, I, that doesn't move me. So, so let's, let's transition a little bit more deeper to kind of current day social protesting. And sure. I, I was uh, home in New York when the Eric Gardner uh, thing happened and uh, I took place in, in several walking throughout the streets of New York and also some die-ins. And, and there's a variety of ways today in which people can socially protest, whether that is doing a die-in, whether that is walking or, or marching. There's a variety of ways. Can you tell me the importance of, uh, and some people would say, and Oprah has, has, has said this about current day protesters, kind of comparing them to the activists of the civil rights movement and suggesting that, you know, 
the real activists perhaps implicitly suggesting that the real activists, activists perhaps were those who really risked their lives in the civil rights movement. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what virtues that you see in present day activism, particularly nowadays when people do die-ins, there's really not a risk that they're going to die, right? Or get sure. shot. But can you tell me a little bit about the, the virtues and the impacts that you see and the diverse ways in which people are protesting today? Sure. Well, you know, you mentioned one of the virtues, and, and, and I think that just right off the bat, one of the virtues that I, I think we have to recognize is the virtue of people who are willing to take strong normative positions having to do with, with justice in a time when a lot of people regard any kind of normative beliefs whatsoever as, as passé almost as though we're sort of behind them, right? I mean, there is a kind of postmodern malaise that a lot of people are in that I think keeps them from really having any strong beliefs because having strong beliefs is, it, it seems somehow outdated or, or, you know, inappropriate. You know, people don't want to present some grand narrative or people don't want to engage in binary thinking, you know. But, uh, you know, I think it takes a lot to you know, to go out and to get in the street and to, to protest. And, and in terms of the different approaches that some people might take, you know, whether we're talking about die-ins or, uh, for example, getting, getting in the middle of traffic and basically, you know, blocking off major, major streets and, and major highways, things like that. I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm all for it. And, and I think that, a lot of people, again, on the sidelines say things like, well, wait a minute, this isn't very effective protesting because you're just inconveniencing people and uh, that's not a good way to bring them to, to your side. And I think that the people who say things like that are appealing to a kind of uh, politics of respectability. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the people, for example, in the Occupy movement and also a lot of the people who are really committed to these, uh, these protests, um, sort of centered around Ferguson, but then, you know, have sort of blown up beyond Ferguson in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think they're interested in, in speaking truth to power, and I don't think they're interested in necessarily being seen as, you know, respectable as they're, they're doing so. Because I think what a lot of people recognize is that the, the politics of respectability doesn't get you very far because essentially you are constantly limiting what you are doing as, as a protester or an activist by the rules of the person that you're actually trying to change. How about, uh, what do you think about those who say that it's not radical enough? Sure. Um, I, I agree that many of those things may not be revolutionary, but I, I also would say that they are not nothing. Hmm. And, you know, if we talk about the Occupy movement, you know, for a second, the Occupy movement was in a very obvious way, not successful. I think a lot of people agree on that. Um, and I spent a lot of time down at, at, at Zuccotti Park. I was there a lot. And I can say, yeah, it wasn't very successful. If you want to point to some concrete policy change, you know, in terms of reform, it wasn't particularly successful. In terms of transformation, it definitely wasn't successful. But it did introduce a new vocabulary it did introduce certain questions regarding uh, economic justice that really no one was talking about. And so that may not be enough, 
it definitely isn't enough, but I, I think it's still something. And in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it's still very much in the beginning. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it develops over the, the coming months, the coming years, because many people are recognizing at uh, sort of the tail end of the Obama presidency that there are still some very serious problems and that people need to, to, to stand up and to get into the streets and to actually to, to try to do something about it, even if it just means being with a community of other human beings who are similarly disgusted by the injustice. I remember when I was uh, marching in the streets of, of, of New York and there was chants going around. And we were saying Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And it was a mixture of people from different backgrounds, from different races. And then uh, we got to uh, Times Square and there was an argument that was going on between a, a, a bystander, a black male bystander with some protesters. And he was basically suggesting and saying that this is dividing us. This is dividing us. And even while we were marching, there were some people that were saying all lives matter. All lives matter. Sure. I, I, I want to ask you, you know, even as a white man who was protesting through these streets, right? Um, what is your reaction to that kind of vocabulary where uh, we're saying Black Lives Matter and then people feeling like we need to be so inclusive that we make it all lives matter? What do you think is the importance of the distinction or do you think the distinction even needs to be there? My reaction to white people who respond so negatively and with such a degree of insecurity to a sentence like Black Lives Matter. My reaction to that is that there, there's something, there's just something silly about it. There, it, it there's a, a complete lack of understanding. The idea is this, when, when people say Black Lives Matter, that is not an exclusive statement. You can imagine maybe at the end of that sentence there should be a comma two and then a period, right? But why add that, right? People who say, oh, come on, black lives matter, all lives matter. Well, of course, all lives matter. Of course, that's true. The problem is that within a racist society, certain lives, namely white male lives, have generally mattered much, much more. So to affirm that black lives matter is not to take away from white people in any way. And I think to interpret it that way is very insincere. And if it is sincere, it's incredibly insecure. And quite likely that is an insecurity that comes from a, a sort of uh, hidden guilt about the reality that there is a, a, a white privilege, that there are people who, who do know that their lives, that their lives matter more. Uh, you wrote a piece on, on Salon.com that was very good about, about privilege. And there was another piece I saw the other day, and this guy, he basically said, to understand privilege, think about video games. And, you know, that was the beginning of this piece, and I was like, video games, this is strange. <laughs> um, but the idea was, in, in these days, when you start a video game, you know, you, you spend $60 at GameStop or whatever, you put the video game in, one of your first choices in the game is, what is the difficulty setting, right? Hmm. Uh, you want to choose easy, uh, you know, medium or, you know, like high difficulty. And, you know, sometimes they'll have clever names for the different settings. But that's not a bad way of thinking about privilege, which is to say that, you know, if you are white in a, in a racist, anti-black society, 
you are essentially playing the game of life on the easy setting. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have struggles. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be setbacks. But things are going to be comparatively much, much easier. And so I thought that was a very interesting way of thinking about uh, you know, the question of, of, of privilege. That was an interesting analogy uh, yeah. to use as a kind of teaching tool. So let's get a little personal here. Sure. YouTube or Netflix? I would say Netflix, but they removed Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> and so now I guess I would have to say YouTube. And, and it is also true that, I mean, YouTube is more democratic and YouTube is also much more surprising. It's, it's insane some of the obscure, amazing things you can find on YouTube if you have the time to look for it. Leather jacket or wool jacket? Particularly uh, in the wintertime. I would say leather because I, I think I'm allergic to wool. Either I don't <laughs> like it or I'm allergic to it. It's one of the two. When you're not doing philosophy, you are? Running, uh, you know, spending time with my, with my wife, hanging out with friends, just doing stupid stuff, uh, perhaps just sleeping. Um, as I recall, I, I, you took a, a very uh, embarrassing picture of me having fallen asleep at John Jay several I cr- years ago. I created a meme out of it. <laughs> yeah, you did. It didn't really take off. I didn't see it on Reddit too much, but yeah, it was pretty good stuff. Okay. Now, this is, this is a tough, tough question, so you're really going to have to put in your, your thinking cap for this one. Okay? Yeah. All right. Rename these TV shows with a famous philosophy book title. All right? Okay. You got it? Yeah. First one. The Kardashians. Okay, can I pa- can I hear them first and then I sure, and then sure. I do it? Okay. So, okay. The Kardashians. Okay. ABC's Blackish. Okay. And Netflix House of Cards. So okay. the Kardashians. Yeah. Blackish and House of Cards. Okay, so House of Cards, I think, is kind of an easy one. Uh, <laughs> I would say uh, the Prince Machiavelli, right? That I think that makes some sense. Blackish, I've seen several episodes of it. Very good show. Uh, maybe, how about Visible Identities, uh, Linda Martin-Alkoff, very good book. Why? Um, because it deals with um, critical race theory in some very interesting ways, uh, deals with uh, sort of the complexity of racial identity, and, and that that's definitely something that is addressed, I think, in some very thoughtful ways in, in the show. Okay. Is, is that okay? Yes. All right. Okay. I've got a good one for the Kardashians. I All think. right. All right. I'm kind of proud of this. Okay. All right. Uh, the incoherence of the incoherence. Who is by this by? Aver- okay. 12th century Islamic philosopher. Okay. Yes. Yes. I'm familiar. Right. Why? Well, just the title. I mean, I don't think that the Kardashians are trying to you know, synthesize Aristotelianism with Islam, <laughs> but they're quite incoherent and they're even incoherent about their incoherence. And so I, I, I think that works. <laughs> okay. Think that works. And finally, yeah. what is your favorite Fanon quote? There, there's a quotation uh, near the end of Black Skin, White Masks. Uh, it's a quotation that actually alludes to the introduction of the book. But it's, it's a pretty well-known quotation, but it's definitely one that has always struck me. And so uh, 
this is this is the quotation. Uh, Fanon says, "I said in my introduction that man is a yes. I will never stop reiterating that yes to life, yes to love, yes to generosity. But man is also a no, no to scorn of man, no to degradation of man, no to exploitation of man, no to the butchery of what is most human in man, freedom." I like that quotation. Nice. A lot. Doug, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking with you too. We need to get you out to New York again soon. Yes, I'm coming home soon. Fantastic. For more access to the Unmute podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.